Good morning. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 23, verse 50 to chapter 24, verse 12. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who were told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. If you're a Christian, have you ever wondered, is Christianity really true? For example, have you thought to yourself, why do so few people believe it? Why do so many find it unbelievable and even unacceptable? Well, we're starting a new series today covering part of the Bible that was originally written for someone asking just that. He was a man called Theophilus, and Luke wrote both his Gospel and his second volume, the Book of Acts, to reassure Theophilus that what he had come to believe about Jesus really was true. And this series is going to cover from Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24 through to when the Apostles began to preach Jesus to the world seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So at that point, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that under your guidance, Luke and Acts were written to assure us of the truth of the gospel. Please would you use them to give us greater confidence as we believe in your Son and as we try to make him known. In Jesus' name. Amen. So first, let's remind ourselves how Luke begins his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he begins. So when Luke wrote, that means there were already many written accounts of Jesus, almost certainly including Mark's gospel, plus other writing that didn't make it into the New Testament. And they were written, verse 2, 
just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So the information about Jesus was uh, delivered or handed down by the eyewitnesses who actually saw and heard him. And Luke has the integrity to say that he himself was not an eyewitness. He got his information from the apostles and some of the others who were involved in the events he's describing. And verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, most excellent so-and-so was a term of address for a high-ranking Roman citizen. So Theophilus uh, would probably have gone through the Eton and the Oxbridge of his day and ended up working for something like the Foreign Office. And from hints in Luke and Acts, it seems he'd first been attracted to Judaism, gone to the synagogue, and then some Jewish Christians had taken him through Christianity Explored and he'd come to faith in Jesus, which would certainly have raised eyebrows in the Foreign Office. You can imagine the comments. But Theophilus, these Christians don't believe in any of our gods. They're, they're narrow and intolerant. But Theophilus, this Jesus was crucified by our own government, so Rome doesn't believe in him, nor should you. But Theophilus, these Christians are such a disliked and persecuted minority. Surely if Christianity was true, it would be more popular. Which would have all unsettled Theophilus. Just like today, it's unsettling that we are the minority and our culture now thinks that we are the intolerant bad guys and that we're completely out of step with, quotes British values and everything that's politically incorrect. Of course, none of that proves anything about the truth or untruth of Christianity. It just makes it feel untrue, doesn't it? And so Luke wrote, chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, on to Luke 24. If you were with us over Easter, you'll know that Luke 23 is about Jesus' death on the cross. And as we come to Luke's evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we need the end of that chapter for background. So Luke 23 and verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, that is the Jewish leadership, which condemned Jesus to death, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, the Roman governor who'd had Jesus crucified, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, i.e. for getting ready for the Jewish Sabbath, and the Sabbath, which was Saturday, was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And that's why I said earlier that Luke got his information from the apostles and some of the others who were involved in these events, in this case directly or indirectly from these women who had followed Jesus alongside the apostles which is one of several details that shows that Luke did not make this up because in his context, the testimony of women, sad to say, was discounted. And so the last thing that you would invent was a story uh, in which they were at the centre. And I guess the way the Lord in his sovereignty made them the key players here was his way of levelling things up. And in the events of verses 50 to 55, the Lord was setting things up 
for Jesus' resurrection, to make what was about to happen as clear and well-evidenced as possible. Because by the end of Luke 23, instead of being thrown into Jerusalem's open common grave, along with all the others who'd been crucified, Jesus' body was on its own in a brand new tomb where there were witnesses who'd seen exactly which tomb it was and how his body had been left there. And the chapter ends, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, that is to finish off the Jewish burial customs, but on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So on to chapter 24, and the first thing we see is these women expecting a dead Jesus. Chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, so it's now Easter Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Why? Well, to finish off the Jewish burial custom, which shows they were expecting to find a dead Jesus and had no expectation at all of his resurrection. And that's really important because it tells us what kind of eyewitnesses they were, because they're often caricatured as um, gullible, pre-scientific people who'd believe anything, but they were no more prepared to believe anything than we are. And they were working here on the same assumption that we do, namely that dead people stay dead. And if you're just looking into all this, maybe you, so far, have just thought of Jesus as a dead figure of the past, uh, just a good but very much dead moral teacher and example. That's all he is. And if that's the case, uh, you are missing the real point about Jesus as much as these women were at the beginning of this chapter. Because next, we see them finding a missing Jesus. Look on to verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the stone had been rolled across the entrance to the tomb to make it secure so no one could tamper with it uh, or move the body. And Matthew's Gospel says the tomb was also guarded by the authorities because they wanted to make doubly sure that no one did anything to that body uh, which would help the claims of Jesus to live on. They wanted it all knocked on the head. But now the guard is gone, the tomb is open, the body is missing, which verse 4 left them, unsurprisingly, perplexed. And the puzzle is, who has moved the body? Because the only people who could have done, namely the authorities who were guarding it, are the only people who wouldn't have done. So we've now seen two crucial pieces of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. One is the fact that Jesus was really dead, and the other is the fact that his body left the tomb. Now, that by itself doesn't prove a resurrection, but alongside what we'll see next week, it does. Because what we'll see next week is Luke's first account of how Jesus appeared risen from the dead and put that together with the empty tomb. And it shows that the resurrection was not something that happened to those first disciples. It wasn't a hallucination. Uh, it wasn't that Jesus lived on in their hearts and minds. The resurrection was something that happened to Jesus. It was Jesus being bodily risen from death to life beyond death. 
And right now in verse 4, these women didn't get that. And right now, if you're just looking into this, you may not get it either. You may be thinking, I can see that these things might have happened, but I don't get what they mean. What do they say about Jesus? So it's good that the next thing we see is these women hearing an explanation from Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And later, Luke makes clear that they were angels, God-given messengers, because God knew this was not going to make any sense without explanation. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. And then they quote what Jesus had said back in Luke chapter 9. That the Son of Man, which was one of Jesus' titles for himself, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So Jesus wasn't there in person to explain what was going on, but the angels quoted what he'd said before his death and resurrection, about his death and resurrection. And it's as if they were saying to the woman, look, you've, the women, you've forgotten what he said. And actually the problem was not just that they'd forgotten these words of Jesus, but they had filtered them out because they didn't fit with their expectations of what the Christ or the Messiah was going to do. So look at verse 7 again. Jesus had said that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. But they were not expecting that sinful people would get rid of the Christ, which is what the Jewish leaders and Pilate appear to have done, but that the Christ would get rid of sinful people. But that, of course, would mean getting rid of Saul, which would certainly solve the problem of evil in the world at a stroke. But where would it leave us? So instead, in his love, God had sent his son a first time to offer us by forgiveness through his death on the cross, a new start where we accept him in our lives where he ought to be. But of course, that leaves us the freedom to reject him. And Theophilus didn't naturally expect that, and nor do we. Because we look around, I think, at all the rejection of Christ and Christianity and Christian influence in our culture, and it takes us by surprise that God gives people such freedom to reject him. But he does, because he's not the God we expect. Back to verse 7 again. And the next thing Jesus had said was that he must be crucified. But they weren't expecting that the Christ would die let alone die the ultimate Roman death penalty. But they didn't realise that God had planned that particular death because it would point to the real meaning of what was going on, which was that Jesus was not just an innocent man undergoing a penalty he didn't deserve at the hands of Rome, but that Jesus was the sinless son of God undergoing a penalty that he didn't deserve, but that we do because he was taking the judgment upon himself for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And so that he could become the one way back into relationship with the one God who is really there. And Theophilus certainly didn't naturally expect that, and nor would the uh, people in the foreign office expect that, as they were offended by him saying so. Because none of us 
naturally sees ourselves as people uh, desperately in need of the forgiveness of God. And none of us naturally thinks that that could only come about by something as awful as the cross. He's not the God we expect. Back to verse 7, one last time. And the other thing Jesus had said was that on the third day, he must rise. But they weren't expecting that either. They had some idea that people would rise from the dead at the end of history. But in the middle of history, right here and now, they just assumed that dead people would all stay dead. I mean, that is our invariable experience of human death, isn't it? But what if this wasn't just an ordinary human death? What if Jesus' claims were true, that he was God's son, that he did come from heaven? What if Jesus was a person who entered the human race from outside in order to go through death for our sake, but who could not possibly stay death because he was stay dead because he was God become human? And that too, uh, Theophilus would not have been expecting, and nor are we. The lesson is that if we are going to deal with the God of the Bible, we have to face up to the fact that he is not the God that we expect. And whether you're looking into this for the first time or whether you're a Christian like me of decades of standing, then your mind, along with mine, uh, is full of wrong ideas about what God must be like and what his plan for the world and for our lives must involve. And we need to suspend all of those wrong ideas and listen to God tell us what he really is like, what his plan really does involve. And above all, that involves listening to Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, as these angels were getting these, these women to do. So we've seen them expecting a dead Jesus, finding a missing Jesus, hearing an explanation from Jesus. Lastly, we see them facing unbelief in Jesus. Look at verse 9. And returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven, that is, the remaining apostles minus Judas, and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Other translations say nonsense, and they didn't believe them. So notice in verse 11, uh, it's not that the apostles checked the facts and found them false or that they thought long and hard about the angel's explanation and saw good reasons why it was implausible. It was that in their present frame of mind, it just seemed nonsense and they could not believe it. And you can understand that because their ability to trust in Jesus had been all but destroyed by his crucifixion. Just like for some of us, uh, our ability to trust in anyone, let alone Jesus, has been really damaged by what we've been through, by what people have done to us. And that can be one of the many reasons why we face unbelief in ourselves and unbelief in other people as we try to tell them about Jesus. Our or their present state of mind can just filter the gospel out. But actually so can someone's present worldview. So, for example, the, the person whose worldview is that miracles can't happen is bound to look at Luke 24 and say, this did not happen. It's nonsense. And there is no way forward unless that person is open to the possibility that thou, their worldview might possibly be wrong and is willing to look at what first seems unbelievable. Which is how this passage ends. Verse 12. But Peter, good old Peter, rose 
and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marvelling at what had happened. So along with Theophilus, the first person this was written for, have you ever really wondered, is Christianity really true? Do you find yourself unsettled by the way the culture around us makes us feel that it's untrue? by the unbelief you face as you share the gospel, and by the unbelief and, and doubt and questioning that you still find inside yourself. Well, under God, Luke wrote, so that in the thick of all of that, chapter 1, verse 4, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Father, in a world that often makes us feel this is untrue, thank you for the way the Bible takes us back to what did happen and what is true for all time. Thank you that Jesus has risen. And please use this series to help us grasp more of what that says about him, but above all, to help us relate to him as the living presence at the centre of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.